We brought a real cool guest, Patrick Goodwin from Vertex Aeration. I mistakenly called him Mr. Bubbles, but it's actually Bubble Master. Uh, yeah, listen, two two completely different <laughs> connotations. Now he's gonna everly forever be referred to by me uh, lovingly as Mr. Bubbles from now on, but. That's different than Bubble Master. Yeah, that's a whole other story. But what we're doing today is we're diving into aeration, and no pun intended. We are talking about surface aeration fountains, when you need them, how you size them, and the whole. I think we do a pretty good job of of explaining what we need to do and when you need to put them out. Don't you think? Uh, I think we do a good job of explaining everything uh, that we ever talk about. So, yes, I think we do a great job. I think Patrick does a better job than we do. Definitely a better job than I do. I agree. Uh, but he's a great wealth of knowledge. I've uh, known Patrick for a while. He's a, he's a good surfer. Uh, he likes local breweries. Uh, and apparently, uh, he likes gator hunting. So, I got to get on and get in on some of that. That's right. Got, he a uh, ton of experience, and uh, I can't wait yes. to hear all about it. Me too. Gonna be fun. Welcome to Sitting Dockside. This podcast is for people who dig ponds and lakes as much as we do. On this podcast, we're going to bring the most knowledgeable people from all over the country. Talk about wildlife, fisheries, lake construction, lake management. Sit them down, hang out, and just talk some shop. I'm your host, Matt Rail. I've been working with lakes and ponds for over 20 years. And during that time, I picked up on a ton of tips and tricks from lake and pond owners all over the country. So if you want to learn how to catch some smiles for your kids and grandkids off your lake, or how to grow some memories off your pond, then come sit with us, sitting dockside. We got a pretty cool guest. All about Bubbles, cool. Mr. Mr. Bubbles himself. <laughs> <laughs> and Troy, do you have a, do you have a good week? <laughs> I've had a great week. <laughs> it's been it's been quite phenomenal. Um, yeah. You know, sitting here with being able to see Patrick makes me happy. I did a I did a thing a while back, and I talked about how good my hair was getting to be, and it was very it was up there with Richard Gere and Michael <laughs> Landon. Patrick Patrick's hair is is very uh, Richard Gere esque. I'm just telling you, it's good hair, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I guess all the listeners are now going to have to want to chime in and, and see the video, right? <laughs> that's right. That's how, see, that's called a. I don't know what that's called. I think you're. I think you're a little jealous about the hair. I, I've never known a friend that talks about their hair more than you, Troy. That, that's uh, not a not a good or bad thing. I just it's interesting, you know. Yeah, you know. Look, I like good hair. <laughs> um, mine, mine typically is so. <laughs> <laughs> uh you are amazing uh mr bubbles is is basically <laughs> what, a, what a lot of guys are what's your name tag say on your desk um so my colleagues got me a plaque that says bubble master okay master's degree different than this um but no my my real title is aquatic resource scientist okay so and, I don't you travel bubbles. I do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Aquatic. Yeah. So let's lay the, let's lay the groundwork. You work for Vertex Aquatic Solutions, which is traditionally, historically, have been a a very large manufacturer of 
aeration, particularly bottom-based aeration systems, correct? Yes. And then yep. you've been there for seven years, and where we met is that you're going around educating people, and you've done dozens and dozens in front of general public, professionals, teaching them about the benefits of aeration, right? And then yep. you have a master's, actually, in lake management from from New York State University. Did I say that right? Yes, uh, State University of New York. Okay. Yep. And there you did some work on a 100-acre lake in your master's. Um, there, tell me a little bit more about that. And then... Yeah, so the, the program um, up at CUNY, um, it's an applied uh, master's degree in lake management. So we're uh, looking at all aspects, lake management, building comprehensive management plans. So um, looking at everything within the lake, but also that's draining to it, watershed and so forth, um, and putting forth a plan, um, going through each, each aspect of the lake um, from what's currently being done with it to the objectives that the stakeholders would like to see for it and all the management strategies that you can utilize. Um, and one of them that they, one of the reasons why I picked this lake was because they had an existing aeration system um, there um, and wanted to uh, learn more about uh, aeration, how it works, uh, the pros and cons of it, benefits and so forth. And um, yeah, just learned a whole bunch and has uh, now kind of rolled over to what I do now. A lot of those diagnostics and, uh, and testing that I learned in, in my master's is what I'm also doing now with my career, which is uh, uh, part of the consulting side of things that I do. Right. And you say, what did you say, a comprehensive lake management plan that dive into that. Basically, if, well, let's, let's see if I can get it here. Is that basically you, you listen to the objectives or the goals from the, you said stakeholders or a lot of people, and then you define where they're at and then you kind of fill in the gaps of how to get there. Right. Is that, did I, did I answer that? Yeah, right? correct. So it's, it's a data driven decision management. So, Sitting down with the stakeholders is, is step one, finding out what their water quality issues are, what, um, what issues they have, plant issues, fisheries, what their objectives are, and so forth. And then taking all that information and building a, a study design that will be able to figure out what the underlying issues are or what they've explained and then uh, how to address them um, in the most you know, cost-effective way, essentially. So looking... Yeah. Everything from nutrient budgets to hydrology budgets, doing water quality modeling. Uh, we're looking at biological structure of the, you know, the entire food web, everything from algae to zooplankton to fisheries, um, and how we can utilize that to meet their objectives, either from a water quality standpoint or from a fishery standpoint. I mean, it really covers a little bit of everything, lake management, uh, all aspects. So it's very applied. Um, you know, um, social, you know, the sciences, and then also kind of brings in this industry as well, because we're going to know about these techniques and the cost and how well they're going to be effective and are they going to meet the stakeholders' goals. Right. Got it. So we're going to, aeration is one of those interesting topics, you know. Um, they, let's just, let's first talk about, you know, we have, surface aeration and then we have bottom-based aeration systems and we have fountains let's kind of quickly skim over that and then 
let's dive into which one works best for for where and why you know you no know, i actually uh i actually had this conversation with a with a gentleman today that has a, a five acre lake a deep five acre lake he's growing really really large fish and uh, this was his question uh, he's got some surface aeration uh you know and he made the comment that he had quit fertilizing uh, and would he still need lake bottom aeration and uh, you know we had to have the whole conversation about why fertilization and thermoclines really don't have anything to do with each other uh, or at least phytoplankton so yeah this is a this is a great topic for right now yeah awesome but so when would you use surface aeration uh i got a fly buzzing around my head so the uh the when would <laughs> when would you do surface aeration and when would you do bottom-based aeration system and when would you do a fountain patrick what do you tell people when it comes down to that? Yeah, so I kind of try to break it down for stakeholders, um, you know, homeowners and so forth. I try to, I like to use this framework, this kind of the three-legged stool of lake management where we have to meet all three legs of this stool for us, for that technique to be the, you know, the kind of the preferred technique. So it's going to be, you know, technically effective. So it's, is it going to work, meet our objectives for what we're trying to do in that lake? Um, is it you know, was it with, within budget? And then also, you know, is it institutionally acceptable, you know, regular, regulatory side? So I think for aeration, the institution side usually isn't much of an issue. So it really comes down to cost and technical effectiveness. Um, and so for fountain aerators or for surface aerators, they're going to be the most technically effective in shallower uh, bodies of water. So I would say shallow uh, you know, six, less than six feet deep, um, you'll be able to get, uh, you know, small and shallow, I should say, um, uh, you know, six feet deep, a couple, of, you know, an acre or so, um, they can, they can be effective in, you know, maintaining oxygen levels within the lake, um, and where traditional bottom diffused aeration, where you're taking compressed air and pumping it down to the bottom of the lake, uh, inducing a bubble plume, which is what's behind me right here, um, it's going to be much less effective in those shallow areas. We just don't have a lot of time for those bubbles to exchange oxygen. We're not able to effectively mix the water as well either um, in those shallow uh, areas of a lake. Um, you could use those. So there's kind of like a transition zone as well where we're starting to get a little bit deeper, you know, six to eight feet, or, or I'm sorry, six to 10 feet, where, you know, you could go with a fountain and an aerator um, in conjunction, if you are, you know, putting fertilizers in for you're trying to grow big fish and so forth, where you have high oxygen demand and you need that extra, you, know, you kind of need everything you, you, uh, you got in your toolbox to try to maintain adequate oxygen uh, so you don't lose that fishery. So there's, a, there's definitely a time where you're going to want to look at possibly doing both those techniques, um, um, especially in, in in deeper and shallower areas um, of the lake. Uh, from a technical effectiveness standpoint, bottom aeration is gonna be your kind of go-to approach once you start getting about you know, deeper than eight feet. It's gonna be the more effective approach for adding oxygen, maintaining water quality. Um, and kind of going back to that three-legged stool, you know, cost is always a big factor as well too. So. So I've kind of laid out what would be most technical effective, you know, fountains in, sh in shallower areas, aeration is going to be more effective in these kind of starting to get into deeper water. 
Uh, Aeration by far is going to be the most inexpensive approach because uh, we're moving air as opposed to water. Um, so from an electrical standpoint, you're, all, you're not going to be um, eating up too much of electric bill uh, as compared to a fountain where you're moving, moving water. Just the energy to move water is just much greater. And the capital cost to install just a compressor that's just pumping air or even pure oxygen, we have those available. That, that is an availability as well, too. Um, is going to be much, much cheaper. You'll be able to get a lot more done uh, cost-wise with a bottom diffused aeration than a fountain aerator. So there, there's definitely pros and cons. You know, if you're not meeting your objectives, even though it's cheaper, it's, you know, at the end of the day, you're kind of falling short. So you kind of have to look at this and what, you know, what's your end objective, regardless of cost is kind of the first and foremost, and then kind of start weighing your options. Could I do an aeration and a fountain to try to reduce that cost? Or uh, so it, there, there's a variety of different ways of looking at it. So, right. The, uh, yeah, you, you kind of hit on the same way I think about it too is that fountains, shallower, they do a really good job of throwing water up. So, anytime you do that, you have to, you know, when you throw water up in the air, you're losing energy and losing volume. And uh, so it takes a higher horsepower, higher amount of energy, higher capital costs, but they look pretty, you know, that's the advantages of them. And then, you know, with uh, the surface aeration basically is a fountain without a nozzle, just as a gigantic f flushing ball of water spinning around is what I call surface aeration. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, and then, you know, you get a little bit more, but the higher sphere of influence around the diffuser itself, but you know, adding oxygen directly into the water column around there. But then you have now you, but it doesn't go really deep. It doesn't get all the way through the water column. And then, but then you have the third one called the bottom based aeration, which you described really well is that you have a compressor on the shoreline that the motor is out on the shoreline. It uses very low amps and comparatively to the other two. And then runs a line to the bottom of the pond and then and then releases air through these designed diffusers as it rises it it picks up and mixes water and and throughout the whole water column did i hit everything right there patrick yeah i would say so i you know, that. You know the, the underlying processes for both aeration uh or i, I should say surface fountains or mixers and bottom aeration is, is really we have, there's two related but separate processes at play. One is being, you know, oxygenation, which is coming from the bubbles, a small amount coming from the bubbles themselves. Um, but the, the majority of the oxygen transfer is actually coming from physically moving water. Um, so with the bottom diffuse aerator, the water is being moved. It's inducing a, uh, um, um, uh, this movement of water from the bubble itself. Uh, for a fountain aerator or some type of mixing device on the surface, it's physically moving it, you're pumping it and so forth. Right. Uh, and then you have, you know, circulation, you know, it's mainly the circulation uh, component uh, also right. as well. So it brings a variety of benefits just from moving that water. Right. Anything you want to add to that, the Goldsby? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things, obviously, we work on some shallow ponds, but uh, the majority uh, of of what we're working on are probably, you know, 12 acres and less, but even in those one and two acre lakes, a lot of times pond, whatever you call it, reservoir, um, 
they can be fairly deep. Uh, a lot of times people are damming up small haulers. Uh, and uh, so that depth causes an issue when we only try to use surface aeration. Uh, we, we typically always have a thermocline in every one of our reservoirs that we manage. Uh, and without leg bottom aeration, we are just not uh, getting that thermocline uh, out, of the, out of the water column. Uh, and what we see typically in this part of the country, uh, we will have uh, fish mortality based on straight um, plant respiration and uh, plant die-off, but the majority of the time we see turnovers uh, at some point in the year from a cold rain breaking that thermocline. So I've always found that the lake bottom aeration uh, is more thorough at protecting against any type of potential low oxygen scenario. Mm. That's a good segue. You said a few things. It's a basically, you're talking about bottom-based aeration systems working in deeper water. And then, Patrick, why don't you hit on like, well, he said a couple of times, thermoclines, and why would why do these work better when you get deeper? So uh, the majority of what bottom diffuse aeration, the benefits of what it's doing it, it is artificially de-stratifying the lake. Um, and so it's, it's maintaining homogenized temperatures and densities throughout the entire water column so that oxygen can easily get into the water from the atmosphere. Um, and during, during the hotter months, you have this phenomen, phenomenon that uh, develops within a lake. All lakes will, will experience it for the most part uh, called stratification. So you have you know, warm, less dense water sitting on top of cold, more dense water. And when this process occurs, you have these, it is essentially a physical barrier that stops oxygen from getting down into that more dense, cooler water. And so you have your sediments and all this other stuff that's fallen down uh, that is essentially an oxygen demanding, a high oxygen demanding um, layer of sediment on the bottom that's just pulling oxygen very quickly out of that layer of volume, you know, that volume of water. So you'll lose oxygen pretty quickly in that, in that bottom layer of water we call the hypolimnion. And so artificially mixing 365 days a year or during periods where you know you're going to have stratification is essentially a sure insurance against that physical phenomenon from ever occurring. Right. Yeah, let me expand on that. We used to have a, uh, a visual tool, Troy, that was oil and vinegar in a big pickle jar. You know those big, huge half-gallon pickle jars? And, uh, sure, absolutely. And then I put oil, and then the, then the vinegar, I would add a little bit of pond dye in it, or pond color, and then it would separate itself, and we'd call it the jar of stratification, you know? I got you. Yeah. And uh, Kerry Martin really ran with that. He was like... Don't ever bring the jar of stratification to my house. Don't let ever ever take the lid off the jar <laughs> of stratification. And uh, and and uh, so the you know long story short is that what he what Patrick is hitting on just to expand it a little bit in a visual sense is that the you your lake when you're a kid and you jump in and you feel your feet are cold. Everybody called that the spring. That's when my spring spring fed in my lake. That's when my feet are cold. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> it's a uh, it's actually the, the vinegar part of the jar stratification, you know, it's actually separated and, and, and Patrick did it very good is that basically, you know, you have two separate areas in which this lake will, will, 
you know, in slow moving uh, ponds that don't flush a lot that you actually separate. And then it's like laying a piece of plastic, which you hit on Troy and is, is a thermocline. It's like laying a piece of plastic along there and two separate bodies of water and all the organics and everything work on bottom. So your oxygen demands so much higher on the, on the, the bottom half of that, that, that area, that colder region and it will suck up the oxygen quicker and it can lose oxygen. And that's where, where Patrick, you're, you're gonna lead into us. I think you got a great slide here, is that you're separating, now your lower area is losing oxygen and, and you're putting bottom-based aeration system to mix that, not ever allowing um, stratification to occur. And I always, always called bottom-based aeration systems de-stratification systems, not allowing the pond to get in two separate layers. And it's very important for a pond owner to understand this, but so many different ways, but yeah. Yeah, I really like that terminology because there's a lot of different terminology for these types of systems, aeration systems, bottom diffuser aeration, um, circulators. I, I, but I, I really enjoy that. I like that word bottom or, or de-stratifiers or de-stratification uh, systems. Yep. I would like to, before we're done with this, talk about one other issue with uh, 365 days was mentioned uh, a while ago. I live in a region that is kind of weird, North Alabama to Kentucky. Um, you know, we flirt with Florida genetics in our, with our bass. So just later on, after we talk about uh, what uh, Patrick's going to show before we get done, I'd like to talk a little bit about why maybe in some regions of the country, if you're trying to maintain some some Florida strain genetics, why you may not uh, aerate 365 days a year, yeah. depending on the depth of the lake. Just a little caveat and, and sometimes in, in some hot regions too, which you're in Florida. We'll expand on that. Let's lay the let's lay the the, the general aspects here of why why you need bottom base and what it does and or destratification systems, and then yeah, let's lead on to some more. That more of it, more have a higher level of, of when and where. Yeah, I guess so. For our listeners out there who can't see this visual, uh, this is a 2D diagram of what a lake would look like when stratification is occurring, where we have this, you know, warm upper layer, less uh, uh, less dense upper layer of water. That's you know, it is oxygenated. Uh, this is where you know you can run into issues with algae and, and so forth. Uh, then you have this kind of transition layer, which is, we, we call it your, your metalimnion, uh, which will include your thermocline. And that's just the, uh, the, the depth of where you have the greatest temperature change um, is, would be where your thermocline is. And then everything below that is where you're going to have uh, your, your hypolimnion, your anoxia, uh, your low oxygen levels. Once you lose oxygen in that, in that bottom uh, hypolimnion, it sets the stage for a lot of the water quality issues that you will have in a lake. Um, you'll start having hydrogen sulfide being produced, ammonia uh, being produced, both of which are very toxic to fish. Iron is gonna start going in from ferric to ferrous and release phosphorus, which is the driving nutrient uh, for plants and algae. So, uh, you know, the, how much phosphorus you have, have in your lake is how much algal biomass, how much plant biomass you can have. There's a good uh, kind of rule of thumb, one pound of phosphorus can support 500 pounds of algae and plant growth. Um, and it will also uh, uh, just reduces your habitat from a fishery standpoint. So if you 
you have a lake that's 10 feet deep and your stratification is developed at, you know, your thermocline's at five feet, you only have five feet of water. habitat for your fish. Right. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think a lot of people miss on this is if, if you are supporting a large fish population in the winter months, uh, if you're not, you know, aerating, then you're, you're trying to support the same biomass of fish in the summer months when you have potentially only a third of the, of the water body there to do that with. Uh, and it can get very difficult. There's a great study uh, out of Mississippi State that Dr. West Neal did with some of our systems looking at uh, fish growth and uh, productivity and so forth, or the lo and the loading capacity of fish, how much fish you can have, how, how big you can get them with and without, you know, aeration. Um, and there was a, a great publication he put out about a year and a half ago. Um, if you guys are interested. Uh, yeah, what, what do you find out? Give us the... Uh, essentially, long story short, uh, you were able to, your loading capa capacity increased significantly. You can have more fish per unit area. However, without supplementing, but with that more, you know, you have more and more fish, there was a decline in the, the bigger, uh, the larger uh, size class of fish. So, um, you had more fish of a decent size, but if you just had aeration, you weren't supplementing with feeding and other um, you know, strategies, you were essentially taking that biomass and spreading it out to more fish and allowing all of them to get to a, a certain size. If, it's been a while since I've read it, but that's essentially what I got from it was that your loading capacity, the amount of fish you can hold per unit volume increases with aeration significantly the, the entire ecology becomes better you have better you know not from a water quality standpoint but also from an ecological standpoint zooplankton and so forth you have a better forage base um, but you also need if you're trying to grow trophy fish big fish you also are going to want to supplement it with additional uh, uh, feeding so it's a so it's a bullet in, do it's a bullet in the arsenal yeah. it's not the silver but in bullets. doing that but in doing that too it opens up your ability to fertilize if you're if you're wanting to fertilize for phytoplankton blue it opens up the ability for you to uh, feed heavier if you want to use more uh, larger amounts of, of, of fish food uh, because you have an entire water column that's now available to do all that with instead of you know this very thin layer of, uh, right. of, of pond uh, to to do that yeah i uh, yeah look there was a uh basically somebody i was working alongside of and and uh they said they had a very small i don't know it was acre and a half and they were a little bit fuzzy there was like 22 i don't know 2400 dollars to put everything in that we needed to do with their with a destratification system and it might have been a little bit more or less i don't know but it's relatively it's just say three thousand and then um and then they were sitting there talking. I was like, well, what if I could double the volume of the, your lake? I mean, and they were like, yeah. And then would you do that for 15 or 20,000? They were like, yeah, we'd get twice as much area. I was like, well, that's exactly what you're doing with the bottom-based area system is increasing the growing area into which, because they were stratified, it was eutrophic, and they were only using the top four feet during the, the hard parts of the of the summer, you know, and now with the destratification system, they were using the whole, it was increasing their whole entire volume, at least by double, if not, you know, a little more. And, 
And then that kind of brought it home. Like, okay, yeah, this is, I see the value of why you need to do this, you know? Um, but I was always going to say back to your, is, you know, bond-based aeration system, Without aeration, we usually say somewhere between two and 400 pounds of fish. With aeration, we say 800 when you feed, then you can actually get that up to close to, you know, even even get another 400 pounds on top of that. And so, and with habitat and good, you know, good management strategies. So, um, so yeah, it's it's really, it really makes a difference when you, when you, you know, add a little more bottom-based aeration system, increases the volume and everything else. But it actually does, I wanna hit, now that we laid kind of the general form, let's kind of get some cool stuff. And this is where Patrick has done some really cool work. It does some really cool stuff to the bottoms too, by adding oxygen to the sediments in the bottom. Talk a little bit more on your work with that, you know? Yeah, so, um, you know, we've come a long way since, since I think it was the 1950s when aeration was first used to address oxygen, you know, oxygen issues. It was used for actually, I believe in Wisconsin to increase, uh, to improve a trout fishery. Um, and, you know, we've, we've been learning so much, so much more about, you know, the, all the, these different processes. It's not just about improving a fishery, but it's also really improving water quality. And a big part of that is that it's adding, maintaining oxygen, maintaining aerobic conditions right at that sediment water interface is really where all, a lot of that magic happens. Um, and we've developed in, in time to, um, to be able to, you know, analyze the sediments and be able to make more informed decisions of just how well an aeration system can, uh, can work. Um, you know, a big driving force of why people, you know, utilize this is definitely because of the oxygen, but also the, it's, you know, kind of the flip side, if you're using this for water quality restoration and you're not really managing for fisheries, you don't want, you want as little phosphorus as possible. And so adding an aeration system, adding oxygen, maintaining aerobic conditions at that sediment water interface will essentially maximize the lake's ability to process phosphorus. And it's a function of iron and how much iron you have in those sediments. And we have testing that we can do. Um, there's just kind of simplistic testing, you know, just looking at ratios of iron to phosphorus to more advanced, you know, uh, fractionation and actually how much iron is actually bound to phosphorus. So we can get really detailed and quantify, um, you know, phosphorus loading from sediments and nitrogen loading from sediments uh, and so forth and, and use that information to uh, model and determine how well this technique will work and improve water quality. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's used in so many different facets of our, you know, aquatic industry um, and a big part of it is because it amends the sediments and improves your sediment chemistry, uh, helps digest a lot of that that organic material, which, um, you know. You say it digests organic material. How does it, talk a little bit, why do you get organic material without oxygen and then you do, and then when you, when you add oxygen down there, you said it, it actually can dissipate? Yeah, hit on that. Yeah, so it's, it's just a natural process for all lakes. They're, they're, all, they're all aging, essentially. So, and when I say aging, as every year they're going to receive some type of organic material from the watershed as, as rain hits that watershed and drains the pond, they're gonna receive grass clippings, uh, trees and so uh, leaf. Um, and then even organic material that's self-generated within the lake itself from phytoplankton, algae and so forth, plants and stuff. Over time, you know, it's kind of like a train. They're all kind of going one direction and 
each year they have more and more organic material that's going to be deposited onto the bottom of these lakes. The more organic material, the more oxygen demand. And so as these lakes age, you know, small, small ponds that are being fertilized regularly, they're going to, they're going to age a lot quicker than a, you know, one of the drinking reservoirs for Boston, which is the Quavin, which is completely um, uh, the forested watershed, you know, they, they're going to, you know, they're going to age a little bit slower than a, a very um, you know, developed watershed and so forth. So as you get more and more organic material deposited, you increase your oxygen demand and you're going to have more and more muck. So if you can add and maintain good aerobic conditions, it will help process a lot of that organic material, that load that's coming in every single year and help process it and maintain um, the, the lowest amount it, it can naturally, essentially. So does it, uh, it'll digest in it. If you don't have oxygen down there and you have all this organics, it, you, you mentioned that it, it makes muck? Is, is it, it will make muck. So one of the things that happens is when you start losing oxygen, you go more and more into oxygen debt. You, you start changing your electron acceptors from oxygen to nitrate nitrate to sulfur, which the byproducts of that electron acceptor is going for bacterial respiration is going to be sulfide. And what they produce is a lot of uh, muck uh, in that it's, it's like a gelaginous muck layer that you can see. And what, what we'll find is once you've restored this oxygen, um, you, you'll see this all gets condensed back down um, into a more natural, um, you know, um, uh, process state. So uh, you can you can even see oxidized iron on the surface. You have like kind of this brown layer, and then you know, kind of marl black layer underneath. It's 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 pretty cool. It's pretty interesting. So yeah. So you're saying without if you didn't put an aeration system, you actually can the byproduct of things decomposing is is. This it's black, it's black. Yeah, yeah, like when you're a kid and you stepped in a swamp and it smelled yeah. like you know somebody farted next to you. Nice, buddy. Smells like a little bit, a little bit of uh, the you know Troy Goldsby down there. You know, <laughs> that's not true. Alone. That's not true. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, yeah, I think people need to understand one of the things needed for for a more thorough amount of decomposition is oxygen. Things just don't decompose as well without oxygen. Yeah. So yeah. if you're adding oxygen to that bottom layer as things fall down there, they have the oxygen required for their actual decomposition to occur. So creating uh, less of the muck layer. Yeah. I, I like your way. That's you a good point. Yep. The uh the but you're saying now, okay, we did have oxygen down there. We stratified, we made a bunch of muck and it smells and you also get some taste and odor issues. And then you add aeration in there, you have actually seen that muck layer decrease. You have- It gets consolidated and yes, yeah, so you have initial consolidation. If you've had a, a large amount of this, you know, muck, you know, accumulated, it gets consolidated and is processed uh, up to a certain point. Um, so there's a case study that we have East Twin Lake out in Michigan. It was like a 900 acre area. There was a 200 acre portion that had a lot of, it was like a paper mill. They had a lot of organic material being deposited yeah. in this mill. And uh, we were, we, 
very high oxygen demands, screaming oxygen demand. So we restored deep water oxygen, I mean, it's restored oxygen to that sediment water interface. And uh, you can see this kind of linear uh, reduction in muck level, and then it kind of tapers off. So we have this, it, it, you have this initial digestion kind of getting you back to where your natural state would be, and then it tapers off. And so anything else that's coming in, you're not really accumulating much more. It's just kind of maintaining, um, you know, a consolidated wow. okay. as best as you can. Yeah, I, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try an analogy real quick, and y'all correct me if this is completely off target. I like to try to find analogies. What I like to do is I like to try to find ways for people to visualize what we're talking about, because most of the time people never see this underwater layer that we're discussing. Mm -hmm. If you build a fire, unless they fall in, yeah. If you build a fire, and you don't have good oxygen that really gets that fire stoked and going good. When you're done with that fire, you're left with a ton of just charred, unburned wood because you haven't had enough oxygen for that fire to burn the wood well. If you have a good fire pit that gets a lot of oxygen to it and you get that fire roaring, because of the oxygen there, everything nearly burns completely and you're only left with a little bit of, of ash at the end. Mm, That's like similar, that. right? Yeah, very similar, yep. That's a good analogy, I like that. I'm gonna plagiarize that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, we did work on a, on a municipality and we put aeration system in there and we noticed a little bit of digestion per year, but then we were doing a benthic study uh, on top of it, uh, meaning that taking a grab of the mud and then they were looking at the diversity of creatures in there and, and they can tell how good the water quality is with that. So they we're doing that that's the study wasn't doing you know the muck wasn't really going down you know we were there three years it was going down a little bit quarter inch and then four or five years later i returned and it was no muck there i thought they dredged it and so i called the the people and they came out and they're like no we didn't dredge it we didn't do anything out here and it was very you know you could see some of the original bottom it was definitely the uh, difference in this organic layer and we look back and then basically it was the density of that muck it was slowly going down and then it got to a point that it was really kind of dense and then these tubular worms in there which actually feed a lot of bluegill by the way um it was moved in these these certain types of and then once they've done that it was a sponge effect and they were pumping water in and out you like my fingers going you like that <laughs> little hand gestures the uh that they were pumping water in and out and then that is when there was a large uh impact in the digestion of this organic layer so that was and we we do see that quite quite often as well too not only with our own stuff but in the peer-reviewed world where you've made the sediment quality you've improved sediment quality and your invertebrate community comes in and you have this very diverse, you know, bent invertebrate community, which is, which is what you want for fisheries and so forth. Um, and they can help, you know, they can process and, and break down the muck as well, too. Just having, you're going from, if you don't have oxygen down there, your dominant species is going to be, you know, carinomid midges and so forth, like blood worms, which can hold, hold on to oxygen for uh, extended period of time. That's why they, when you pull them up, they're red. Uh, they have that. Globin. 
um, to a diverse uh, assortment of benthic invertebrates once you've added that oxygen. Right, which is, which is a huge food source to fish, and we're going to lead into that, but you actually, they can actually, I mean, adding oxygen on the bottoms, I think it's really, well, that whole sediment water interface is often overlooked in so many management strategies just because it's the biggest consumer of oxygen it's the biggest producer of phosphorus biggest community of food for a lot of a lot of bluegill and and forage base including gizzard chad and everything else and we we hardly ever talk about it but the but the where we're going to lead to that is aeration does a lot of cool things for zooplankton too right i mean and and not alone with stuff like zooplankton being critters and what does it do for the water column itself with algaes and, and that? Yeah. So we, I mean, we're talking a lot about, you know, the chemistry of it. Um, kind of want to get back to some of the physical benefits of aeration. Uh, you know, just moving that water can provide a lot of benefits also from a food web standpoint. Um, it can provide more favorable algal species. Um, so a lot of uh, noxious types of algae that you can have in your lake have some of the first, first species to ever develop on our earth are cyanobacteria. They were the first to come in. Um, uh, they have developed under very reducing conditions and they have evolved to be able to uh, handle all different types of situations and outcompete a lot of other algae groups. And one of the things that they can do is produce gas vesicles, which allows them to up, buoyant themselves up and down in the uh, water column. And so when you start mixing, and, you have a turbulent flow going through, you know, throughout your water, you are essentially leveling the playing field for other algal groups that um, can then compete with these more noxious cyanobacteria, you know, it's often toxin producing uh, cyan uh, algae. Um, so it levels the playing field and we'll oftentimes see a more desirable food web. So especially from a fishery standpoint, that's what you want. You want to have green algae uh, and diatoms coming in, um, this, that mechanism really pr promotes uh, a lot of the diatoms, which is a preferred, preferred food source for zooplankton. Um, uh, that is because the diatoms, they have this heavy frustule um, and they sink very quickly. So when you start mixing, you have a prolonged zoo uh, or a prolonged diatom season, which means your zooplankton are doing well. You got big, you know, big daphnids, um, and zooplankton is doing well, then your, your forage space is doing well, then it goes all the way up your food web and you have nice big fish. Um, it also helps uh, just from mixing and improving water quality, we tend to see, you know, two to three fold increase in zooplankton. So that's, that's, your, that's what your forage fish are feeding on um, predominantly zooplankton. So that, that, can, that can be a, a big, um, a game changer in terms not only for your fisheries but also in water quality because zooplankton eat algae and if you're trying to improve water quality the more zooplankton you have the, and the more algae they're eating the cleaner and clearer your water is going to be that's pretty that's pretty cool because i use the analogy like a lot of times you get a pound of phosphorus in your lake and if you're greg grimes in georgia that may be a good thing because he's extremely phosphorus limited in georgia but you know over the rest of the world you know which and i think where you're at troy too is that they we always try to say you know you got this phosphorus pound of phosphorus it can go anywhere and you if it goes to filament out you treat it it's going to go somewhere else 
And a lot of times it'll go to and end up in cyanobacteria, which is not really your goal and probably worse than what you originally started with. But if you can, with this, with aeration, what you're telling me is it increases the zooplankton. We're not pushing that phosphorus in a more benign way. We're actually pushing that phosphorus up the food chain, what you're saying. We're pushing, so therefore we get more zooplankton, we get more fry fish, we get more larger fish, we get more more organisms in the entire community that are utilizing those those nutrients instead of cyanobacteria, filaminous algae, you know, weeds or, you know, or something that's else is undesirable, you know? Did I hit exactly. that or what? I mean, am I, am yeah, I, I mean, correctly? That, that, that energy flow is going to be going up that food web as opposed to going down the food web with aeration. If you don't have aeration, your energy, most of your energy, most of your phosphorus and nitrogen, it's going to go down the food web into detrital pathways and bacteria, which are going to consume oxygen. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So it's you're, you're absolutely right. You're you're taking when you start adding oxygen, you maintain good oxygen 365 days a year. You'll be able to have a much more robust food web, and a lot of that nutrients is going to be able to go into things that you would more you know species that you want. Um, producing a, a better food web better fishery and so forth right and you are you do you want to say something troy uh no i'm learning what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> the uh um nitrogen now phosphorus is the limiting element and but as soon as phosphorus becomes not limited we were able to and nitrogen's really high it, a lot of times we see cyanobacterias, but aeration actually does something cool with that that you you you, you taught me about too, and uh, hit on that. And you did some work with that, right? Or not? Or um, so maybe not for um for like nutrient ratios. Yes, we we have some. Uh, I've done some case studies with that. Um, it really kind of comes back down to you know the types of algae that you can. Uh, have present and, how, and what their preferred source of or preferred form of nitrogen. Mm -hmm. um, so as I said before, cyanobacteria came very uh, early on in our, our the Earth's history. So they evolved under very reducing conditions. So the preferred form of nitrogen that they like is this ammonia, ammonium, that's toxic to fish. It's the NH3, NH4, Forms of nitrogen that are you do not want to be dominant in your water body. You're going to have it's going to wreak havoc on your fishery and so forth. Um, and they get formed when you don't have oxygen. Um, and so, in our you know kind of going back to this history of you know algae uh, coming into this Earth's uh, evolution, you know green algae came in much later on in um, and diatoms as well, and they evolved under um, oxygen-rich uh, environments. So cyanobacteria came in or reducing environments. They started putting oxygen in the atmosphere, and then we have uh, green algae starting to come in, and their preferred food source of nitrogen is nitrate and nitrite, which is what you would want um, in your water body as the dominant form of nitrogen to support your fisheries, support your food web, and so forth. And so maintaining aerobic conditions in your water column is also going to favor species of algae like green algae and diatoms. So it's kind of getting back to the chemical side of how aeration can improve, you know, the biology of your system 
um, you know, there's physical, chemical, and biological um, aspects of how it can improve your system. Hmm. Right. And then, but it actually changes it. The, the nitrogen, does it put it in the air? The, I mean, like it, when I think of nitrogen, a lot of times you think of a gas, does it release it or does it change the little more of the biota in the, in the, in the water column itself? So if you have stratification present and you have this, you know, anoxic hypolimnion, you're going to have ammonification from the sediments. So it's going to, the sediments are going to release a whole bunch of ammonia and ammonium. You're going to have this pocket of, you know, in the hypolimnion, a large amount of ammonia built up. Which is toxic to fish. Which is very toxic to fish. Ammonia is extremely toxic to fish. When you add aeration, you'll have an initial degas off of all that built up ammonia and you know, reduced forms. So what we'll see in some of these case studies that we've, uh, we have, you'll have this kind of large drop off in, if you're looking at total nitrogen or even these more reduced forms, large drop off in total nitrogen and then it stabilizes. Mm. Um, so it, it kind of depends if it's, if you're putting it in before stratification has developed, before you have that ammonification, you probably won't, you know, from, from one year to, if you had a baseline, yes, you definitely would see, you know, a little bit less um, because you're not having stratification, you're not having ammonification um, with this aeration system in. Yeah. Okay. That's amazing stuff. There's so much that goes on with, there's just so much that happens inside of a reservoir that people just don't ever think about. I mean, the it's it's really endless. It is, but we're learning I, so much every day. Yeah, <laughs> it's oxygen though is life. That's the way I look at it. You know, and if you have a body of water that's creating a thermocline, I don't care what the depth is, and I mean, and you want, I mean, anything to achieve long term, especially if it's getting older you know, you do need some mixing and it's really not that crazy expensive, you know, um, to, to, to get things going and get things moving. I, I, I'm, I'm a big proponent for it. I don't know where you're sitting at Troy, but the, uh, Oh, I'm, I mean, I don't, I don't approach, um, I don't approach lake management without uh, aeration being a part of the conversation, uh, lake bottom aeration. It just has to be in this part of the world in, in my opinion. So, yeah, it's slow moving, and it's just if you stratify, you just you're asking for trouble long term. The uh, uh, well, and people need to understand too. I, I've talked to people, and they're like, "So I can put you know one or two diffuser heads in." I'm like, "No, listen, this has to be sized properly. Hmm. Uh, if if you're going to use it effectively, otherwise you're really not doing what it's what it's meant to do. So uh, it needs to be sent in. The lake needs to be sent in with the depths, and and let a let a system be designed. Otherwise, you just you know, you're just throwing money away. I mean, if it's not sized properly, you're not going to achieve all of the things that we've been talking about for the past don't, hour. So what do you mean? So don't buy it from Amazon? Uh, if, Walmart. I mean, if, you know, if, if he starts, uh, if, if Bezos starts uh, sizing them properly, maybe, but <laughs> they're going to have to have a, look, I mean, he may can come by um, Vertex Quantum Solutions. I don't know, and then they can size them for Amazon. But uh, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so sizing 
aeration systems or oxygenation systems. So there are other techniques out there where we're not mixing, we're just adding oxygen. They're more expensive, but sometimes you don't want to do that because you have a cold water fishery and you need cold water and you need oxygen. But sizing has been a big part of what I do for Vertex and also part of my master's as well. So it really kind of comes down to a couple parameters when we're thinking about sizing these systems and how much, you know, it's the, it's the diffuser density, how many diffusers we have, the amount of airflow, and placement. And, and so where we're placing it, how many of we have, and how much turnover, how much water we're actually mixing per day is the key parameter that we tend to look at. There's a, a variety of other ways of looking at it, um, but first and foremost, there, we, we wanna ensure that the sizing is going to meet your objectives. And the best way to meet your objectives is to ensure that we're adding enough oxygen to overcome your daily demand. And then we're also breaking stratification. And so there's ways that we can quantify both of those. Uh, for oxygen, we, uh, you know, some people like, I've seen use biological oxygen, band, chemical oxygen. Band. I don't like those at all. It's not a very good uh, measurement for lake oxygen demand. We want to look at the entire lake's respiration. So it, that all comes mainly, the majority of it comes from the sediments. And so we have ways, if you have dissolved oxygen and temperature profiles, which are so valuable in the sizing process, we can take that information and determine, you know, the area of anoxia, the area where we're actually having this layer of anoxia occur, and figure out how much oxygen and or how much water I need to move to overcome that demand. Okay. Um, really? That brings a good question is, so we, it has to be sized correctly. What do you want? What do you need somebody to do or see, send you to be able to size correctly? So for, there's, Three main things that I ask for is, is I need an accurate volume. So I need a bathymetry map of some sort um, or someone going out there, if it's a smaller pond, you can definitely just do spot checks. Um, you know, having some sense of, you know, how much the water is gonna fluctuate is also, you know, we, we want to size for perfect storm conditions, right? So when we have the least amount of water depth for the system to be you know, mixing and so forth, um, we don't, have and have some sense of dissolved oxygen and temperature um, uh, as well. So some so profiles um, in the lake over time would be ideal. You know, the more the better, the more data the better. Um, if you had some sense of water quality, that's, that's helpful. But honestly, if you have a good bathymetry map, have accurate volume, and I know if I have that, I know, and I have dissolved oxygen, I have temperature, I can calculate the, um, uh, what we call the oxygen demand in grams of oxygen per meter squared per day. I take that value and I can then calculate how much turnover, how much I need mixing and oxygen added per day to overcome that. Okay. Um, that's just from the dissolved oxygen profiles the temperature tells me how much energy, how much mixing I need to maintain thermal, you know, uh, a thermal structure that's completely the same throughout the water. So without those, so a lot, a lot of times, you know, we don't have, 
uh, temperature and depth profiles if we are designing one for a brand new lake. So just taking uh, water volume, size, depth, all of that, and you are calculating worst case scenario and sizing it based on the worst case potential scenario. So I guess in all truthfulness, uh, if you're able to take the data you're referring to and utilize that, you could probably more efficiently size the system. So where you're calculating a new one for worst case scenario, uh, it could potentially be maybe slightly larger than what it would actually need to be if you had all of that data, correct? Correct. So if you don't, the more information you have, the more dialed in your system is going to be and the less of a bigger hammer we have to go in, go in with so that we have, you know, essentially we want to make sure the system is going to work first and foremost. So we might have to add more aeration because of these unknowns um, if we don't have that data. But at the same right. time, for smaller ponds, if you don't have that data, one of the beauties of aeration is that it's been around for a very long time, and there's a wealth of data, wealth of sizing models per region. So we have really good sizing models, even if you don't have a lot of that water quality data, we have a pretty good rule of thumb that will allow us, that will limit that risk of undersizing or not meeting your objectives um, that we can use first and foremost. So we have, you know, kind of this, these theoretical or empirical models. I sh they're empirical models because they're actual data points. We have tons and tons of these data points in different regions that we can use to dial in a SOT and size a system appropriate for your climate, for your region, um, and the more data you have, obviously, the better it's going to be and the less you know, it should be more efficient, and less expensive, the more insurance and less um, possible risk of it being undersized. What is the problem? What happens if you undersize a unit? If they don't size it? It can cause more harm than good. Um, and this has been shown all the time. I can't tell you how many times I go out and with my dissolved oxygen DO profile systems that are size. Um, and, and what happens? I mean, if they, let's say you want to save a few bucks and this, or you, you, you know, Troy and I have heard this a hundred times. I got a 10 acre lake. We're going to do five, three acres at a time and continue buying it. Can I do that? Or, uh, you know, or, you know, let's save a few bucks and, and go, like I said earlier to Amazon and cause it says it'll do one and a half acres and it's, you know, Yep. I have, I run into this all the time, uh, clients, they don't, they don't have the full budget to do the full system or they see a design that I've put forth and they only want to do half of it. When, when they say that, I have to say, I can't, we can't sell you the system essentially because we don't want to tarnish our, our name essentially. Um, you will cut something good. What? Why would if you can't meet the oxygen demand of the lake, and you just bring that poor water quality up into the light zone, the, epi uh, the epigenetic layer, you will stimulate a massive algae bloom, you'll cause a fish kill, your DO is gonna drop, and worst case scenario, which there's a lot of good case studies out there, Bahia Del Mar is a great one, where they had a pond, they, uh, they undersized it, they didn't do it right, they didn't even take depth measurements, they put the system in, they turned the lake over, over a course of a, a couple of weeks, they were not even coming close to meeting the oxygen demands, killed everything in that lake. Odors could be hydrogen sulfide smells that would make silver jewelry turn green if you were <laughs> being 
close to the lake. It was absolutely insane. Um, I mean, th that's kind of worst case scenario, but you know, if you have a lake and you're undersizing it, you are going to cause more harm than good. And it's something that, you know, as a, as a vendor that sells this as a solution to water quality problems, something that we want to be very careful of because it will give it a bad rep. Um, and it's, you know, we want all the tools in our toolbox, but we want to make sure we're using these tools properly with, you know, good sound science and doing things right. Right. So you're saying everything we said that if you don't eliminate the thermocline, all the bad things, the phosphorus is released, the hydrogen sulfide is in there, it'll all come to the surface, but never get resolved. It just basically continues a pumping. Continues. But the best way I think of thinking about this is if, if your oxygen demand is 100 kilograms, I need 100 kilograms of oxygen, and I size the system, and I'm only adding 80 kilograms of oxygen, I'm go, I'm, I still have 20 kilograms that I'm not meeting. So I'm going actually into oxygen. I'm still in oxygen debt. I'm a little bit further out of debt, but I'm still in debt. And your, your fish need, you know, minimum, you know, three to four milligrams per liter dissolved oxygen. And I'm still going into debt. Mm. Your DO probe is going to read zero milligrams per liter, but your redox, which tells you how much oxygen debt you're actually in and, and kind of what your chemistry is, you know, the dominant forms is going to still be very, pretty low you're still going to be going downwards hmm. so yeah you just become and it's it just becomes a, a wreck if you don't size correctly exactly and, but if you get the information you'll you, there's enough people out there that can get it correct and you're obviously one of them so the uh, uh let me ask you some other questions um we hear all the time does you got a compressor, a fountain, you hear the splashing, you don't hear the motor. Does this make noise uh, when you have a compressor on the shoreline? That's, we hear that every person, 80% of the people that, you know, does it, does it make noise? And, and you can answer that real quickly. And Yeah, absolutely. Uh, compressors definitely make noise. They're like AC units. Um, you can dampen them with sound insulation, uh, putting trees around them. Um, the size of the compressor definitely, and the type of compressor will tell you what type of noise as well too. And there's so many different compressors out there. You get into large lake projects, you know, well over a couple hundred acres. You know, we're not using these little vein or piston compressors. We're using like claw compressors, rotary screws, and they're different sounds that they make and they can be loud. You know, but most of the small ponds, you know, what Troy would say was he managing about less than you know, 12 acres you know, you're using predominantly, you know, vein and piston compressors and they do make noise and the, but there's ways of getting around it. Um, you know, you can get it down well below, I would say, you know, like 55 decibels. Um, and even lower than that, you know, that's at like 10 feet. Yeah. Um, I've never, I've, I don't think I've ever installed a system that uh, you can stand over the systems and carry on a conversation like we are now with with no problem. I mean, you can stand next to them. I mean, that's what I, that's how I sell it to people. They are dampened uh, and they're just not, I just don't see that they're an issue. I, I had a guy that mounted one in the top of a, top of a boat dock up top. And I was a little concerned that when he was in his boathouse, it was going to be an issue. It was, it's easy. When you go in there, I said, is that noise going to bother you? He said, what you talking about? I said, the, the compressor, he said, I don't even notice it anymore. So it's, yeah. it's not a problem. Hmm. Does uh, 
there's some you read out there a lot of people are moving in hotter regions they're moving a the diffusers up into the water column giving them an area into which they theorize of good habitat for fish what is your thought on that um it's it's possible um there's not a lot of information on that technique um as much as and, and the reason i would say the better and more preferred approach would do to be to not mix if you're trying to maintain or you're only trying to you know target a certain layer you can just add oxygen directly so you don't actually have to have any bubbles you can just take an oxygen generator and add as much oxygen as you can base and back out based off the discharge pressure and temperature so you know in 10 feet you can get like 17 milligrams per liter of oxygen into those bottom waters um no, and, and you would actually leave the thermocline it would never it does not mix so you you can maintain cold water and maintain oxygen without actually breaking thermal stratification and we we do this for obviously for cold or cool water fisheries you know even if you have like walleye you might want to consider it or um, but also in some areas where you know sediment you know lakes that have high amounts of uh, clay soils in their background they can uh, you know sometimes that mixing you know clay is, is very very fun it's essentially a dissolved colloidal you know particle you know less than two micrometer uh, uh, microns and it will suspend for very very long time so if you mixing you know even after a rain event you can have clay kind of sediment come in and cause turbidity having mixing going on is just going to prolong it from actually settling out to the bottom so a better approach we can do is add oxygen without mixing it's more expensive because we're not getting we don't have the benefit of of oxygen being added naturally from the atmospheres we have to pay that extra added cost um, for this for those systems but again it kind of comes down to first and foremost technical effectiveness then we can start thinking about cost um, and try to balancing what what can we can we not do right the <laughs> with, that, with that kind of being said that kind of goes back to the, the topic i mentioned earlier about the 365 day rule of thumb on uh, aeration uh, except maybe in this climate where i'm at where we're we're still able to try to push the limits of stocking florida strain bass um, and the only issue with that is that we do get cold enough water temperatures um, in the winter months that if you are still aerating and there's not say it's a deeper lake and you are homogenizing the temperature from top to bottom uh, you you have the potential of losing florida strain bass due to temperatures uh, so in those scenarios we find that turning them off for the coldest say two or three months and trying to have some type of warm water layer on the bottom uh, for those fish to, to kind of hide out in, uh, we seem to lose less Florida strain bass that way. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's one way. I mean, that's from a fishery standpoint. Yes, that makes sense. And, you know, cold water will hold more oxygen as well. Um, so you kind of have that going you know, with you, if you turn the system off, especially in cooler times of the year, you probably are going to be okay. You don't have to run it. Um, I always recommend running 
365 days a year because we try to burn off the oxygen debt that's been built up in the, the bottom waters. Uh, there was a recent- Oh, I, I, just, to, just to say, I agree completely. When people ask me, well, how, how often, how long do I need to run it? Because the majority of our lakes do not have pure Florida strain bass. That's just yeah, for yeah. certain clients. I tell them 300, 300, yeah, 365 days a year is what you need to do for the best possible water quality. That's what we tell them. Yep. But there's been, there's been a couple of times where I have lost, uh, not because of the aeration system, just because of the fact that I have, I have lowered the water temperature from top to bottom uh, in deeper lakes where there may be Florida strain fish and they need to try to find, a lot of times they can't anyway, but they need to try to find a little bit of a warmer water refuge. Uh, in those winter months. Interesting, yeah. yeah and, and what we are finding now, there's a recent publication uh, where they were looking at intermittent um, you know, oxygenation and they found that the more, the longer you ran your system, the more, the, the greater amount of oxygen debt you got, uh, you took out of that, of the bottom sediment. So essentially your, your oxygen demand will go down. You you won't have as much of an oxygen demand if you can operate 365 days a year. So it just, just helps justify that claim of trying to run it, you know, more if you can uh, to try to burn off a lot of that debt and burn organic material that's been accumulated. And sure. even up in the even up in the northern region, when you say 365, are you keeping them when yeah ice on and we have everything and and you'd still keep that deep water diffuser as, run. as long as you are still losing oxygen okay well that's a big difference yeah because we we do not lose oxygen we have oxygen to the entire water column we're turning over i mean we get a lot of times 40 degree differences between top and bottom right and between day and night and so we just see a lot of movement in that water column but then um so yeah, that's pretty interesting that, that you would, and then we do a de-icing diffuser too, and which we have, that's a whole nother world there. But um, yeah, you can drop it down. I was gonna say, you can drop it down. You don't need the full system, you know, summertime system. You can drop it down to, you know, one compressor, you know, running. Uh, so then you calibrate it and that's where, you know, and I, I help with, uh, I try to get, stakeholders and, and people that live on the lake to just purchase a dissolved oxygen temperature probe because then you can really dial in the system and and be able to turn it on when you need it and turn it off when you don't oh. if electricity is the issue or dial it not completely turn it off but dial it down um, and kind of oscillate it uh, as you need um, as you need well needless, needless so, to say just from the converse from the past five minutes of our conversation this is one of those topics that's extremely in-depth probably the most in-depth topic that you can discuss uh, when it comes to ponds and lakes. All the more reason for uh, a, a person that is not in this industry that does this as a career, all the more reason for them to contact some type of professional to discuss proper aeration for their lake, whether that's whether that's surface or lake bottom place uh, aeration. Um, very important to talk to somebody that has some knowledge or at least can guide you in the right direction on, on what you need to be doing mm -hmm. and testing for even if you do it yourself a lot of times just because there's sea bubbles doesn't mean it's working you know um 
and like Patrick says, he he actually goes to extent of having, you know, people that are installing their units to detect, you know, to test their whole entire water column, and seeing what temperature and oxygen see actually the functionality of it. So you can't go really wrong with that. That's for sure, you know. But uh, that all being said, um, you are now you've mentioned a couple of times about putting pure oxygen. This is new, right? Like this is what you've been working. Yeah. Well, it's not. It's not new. It's been done for probably just as long as aeration has been around. It's the problem with adding pure oxygen to water is, and it's mainly been done in very large reservoirs or even smaller lakes. But it's it's complicated. So it's always been, it's been expensive and it requires a lot of engineering time to be able to do everything to have liquid oxygen to put it into a, a gaseous form that you can then dissolve into water. I mean, there's so much that goes into it and we're learning more and more. And uh, one of the things I've, I've been uh, working on with Vertex is to take all that that has been built for these, you know, more complicated, larger systems and try to bring it into these, you know, smaller, uh, you know, pond market, you know, the less than you know, 10 acre market something that's more that's easier that's more plug and play and we um it takes kind of like that that engineering cost out so we have like kind of a custom system and it, it's bubbleless it's there's nothing it's just pure oxygen you're just adding pure oxygen to water at the most you possibly can based off pressure and temperature and then you just send it down to the bottom uh, you, so we have two different types of designs uh you have a shallow water oxygenation system so where the thermocline, where your objective is to maintain the thermocline or stratification and you need cold water on the bottom and oxygen and you have, let's say 30 feet, um, you would need to pump that bottom water out, oxygenate it and then put it back in at that same density layer. Because oxygen moves within a density layer better than through a density layer. And you see this all the time with the DO and temperature probe high oxygen at the top, low oxygen at the bottom, because you have that physical barrier, that density gradient yeah. from going down. In deep water, you have, you know, if you're a cold water fishery and it's very, very deep, you have this luxury of not breaking thermal stratification. So you can get rid of the pump and actually just inject pure oxygen through the bubble plume. You have some bubbles, because it's deep, it'll dissipate and you won't actually break up that thermal structure and stratification. So there's two different styles of oxygenation. You have this kind of shallow water one um, where you don't have that luxury of deep water and you, can, you, have to, you can't make any bubbles, otherwise you will break thermal stratification. And then you have deep water, you can, you're generating a little bit of bubbles, um, but you don't need the pump. Hmm. Interesting. So, and you, when, it is, is it sort of like what we used to do is keep a thermocline and then it's called hypolonetic aeration, just send it. Down it's the there. same thing, we yep. did That's, it for trout uh, years ago, but you're basically sculpting this into, into perfection and uh, for smaller, kind of bringing that, that unit to a smaller unit. And when is, when are we going to hear more about that? Um, I think you'll probably be hearing about that in the next couple of months. Um, 
So you're going to do a rollout, huh? Yeah, we're going to do a rollout and so forth. So we'll have it for every single size. We'll have like kind of the micro oxygenation where, you know, less than an acre. Then we'll have kind of an intermediate, you know, three acres, six, six, you know, nine, kind of going up. And then we'll have kind of like the bigger Mac Daddy systems for um, you know, larger, larger volumes that we need to treat. But one of the beauties about these systems is that you don't need to, we don't work, you know, like aeration, we're talking about mixing the whole water volume. These systems, we're only having to address the hypolimion. So, bottom line. yeah, so that's, it cuts the cost down a little bit, you know, uh, it's still more than traditional air. I mean, aeration is by far the cheapest way of adding oxygen to a lake. If you have the depth, uh, you know, all you need is a compressor, air compressor, essentially, and you know, pumping it down. Um, you, can have, you can add an oxygen generator as well. But I mean, that's the most cost effective way, uh, but it does break up thermal structure. So if you have a cold, you know, if, you're, if you have a trout, you can't do it. Um, I can speak to Michigan. They don't allow, because they have a lot of trout, they have a lot of cool and cold water fisheries. They don't allow aeration in any lake area that's greater than 30 feet. So that's a, it's a limitation for uh, like any tool or any of the tools we have in lake management, you know, pros and cons um, to traditional aerations. You can't, you can't, you can't de-stratify that area. So this is where this new technology would be able to come in. We're going to maintain thermal structure and just add oxygen directly. So before you know it, Troy, you're going to be raising trout or having trout down in your yeah. lake. Get some stripers. Uh, I love it. I love it. I love stocking trout. It's one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> hey, man. Well, uh, is there any closing thoughts you want to you wanna hit, Patrick, before we wrap this thing up? Um, I, I just appreciate you guys having me on. Um, it's always great seeing you guys and talking with you. Appreciate wow, it. it's always good to see you, buddy. We got to get together. Yeah, soon. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I pulled a gator tag for uh, this season, so if you ever want to come down, let's let's go get on a gator. And then you don't said, threaten me. Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> <laughs> you said you made some belts out of your last one, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, belts, uh, wallets. Uh, my dog's got a nice uh, collar. Um, used every part of it. Yep jerky meat i mean we're making gumbo uh it's it's a good time yeah well yeah i hope That's you're delicious <laughs> <laughs> but hey man well i really appreciate you coming i really appreciate you taking the time and teaching us here at dockside and uh you know there's a lot to learn like troy said and, and uh, hopefully that that people will realize that this you know the need uh, the capabilities, the benefits, and the uh, and how it would work in, in their particular lake. Troy, any closings you want to say to everybody? Uh, no, just make sure that you aerate your lake properly. Yeah. I think Troy's ready to go to bed. I know you just got back from Vegas. So. <laughs> Woo! Vegas, baby. Oh. That's right. Uh, yep. All right. Well, that's 60%. All right, guys. Well, appreciate it. All right, now. Thanks, Patrick. Always good to see you, bud. Have a go. Yeah, man. This podcast, Sitting Dockside, is brought to you by Private Water Natural Resource Association, a nonprofit 
built just to educate private pond and lake owners on water quality and fisheries and all of that good stuff. There's videos, there's places to read, and there's a community built right into that website. So if you want to learn more, jump to pwnra.org and click. And by all means, make sure that this continues in the future. Podcasts, education, video, become a member. If nothing else, there's tons of platforms. YouTube, Facebook, just hit like, send a comment. We appreciate everything you can do here at PWNRA.